0: Welcome to the What Is Stoicism podcast.
1: In today's episode of the What Is Stoicism podcast, I interview one of my favourite writers on stoicism, Donald Robertson. He's a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist and also the author of such books as How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Verissimus, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, and The Philosophy of CBT. His latest book is a biography of Marcus Aurelius titled... Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor, which is out now and I highly recommend if you'd like to find out more about the life of Marcus Aurelius. In the interview, we talk about the book, Marcus Aurelius' life, and some practical techniques for dealing with anxiety. If you'd like to find out more about Donald and his books, you can go to his website, which is donaldrobertson.name. That's donaldrobertson.n-a-m-e. I hope you enjoy the interview. You start by saying that your new book is a biography of Marcus Aurelius called yeah. Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor. I've yeah. uh, read it, thought it was fantastic, learned a lot about Marcus's life, um, and it really filled in a lot of background about events that you know I did previously know about too, so that was great. Um, I'm sure most people listening to this will probably know at least a little bit about Marcus Aurelius, but I was wondering, as a brief starting point, how you would describe him in a few sentences to someone who's just getting into Stoicism, and maybe doesn't know anything about him?
0: I would describe Marcus Aurelius in a couple of sentences. He's the last famous Stoic of antiquity, like, which is really strange. By the time Marcus Aurelius got into Stoicism, it was about nearly 500 years old, if you can imagine that. So Zeno, you know, Socrates, and these guys would have been ancient history to him. That'd be like us studying medieval knights or something, right? But it's still a living philosophical tradition by the time he's around. And he narrowly missed out on studying with Epictetus, the most famous teacher of Stoicism, who had been exiled to Greece by a previous emperor and died when Marcus was about fourteen or something. So Marcus is at Rome. He never got a chance he probably studied under men, had studied with Epictetus. So he was immersed in Stoicism from an early age. And we know more about him than we do about any other Stoic philosopher and possibly any other ancient philosopher, because he was a big deal back in the day because uh, he was a, a Roman emperor.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to ask next. It's just that some people might be surprised that there's actually enough information about marcus aurelius to paint the full picture of his life but uh you know given he wrote, only wrote one book himself but um he actually had quite a lot to work with uh mm-hmm. you know given how many people wrote about him
0: yeah well so, you know sometimes people say there's a few people out there on, you know on the internet Why like, there's a lot of people with strong opinions about things um, that they, they don't necessarily have the facts right about. But I every so often I meet people on the internet that are like, we don't know anything about Marcus Aurelius. Like, so that seems to be a thing that people believe, but it's the opposite of the truth. I mean there's huge gaps in our knowledge about ancient Rome and you know, some of our sources are notoriously unreliable. Nevertheless, we know more about Marcus than we do about just any just about any other ancient philosopher. Because the book that we have from him, first of all, is quite personal. It was probably not intended for publication. And so it really gives us a window into his soul in a way. It's his personal reflections. So I wrote a book called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And you might say, how do we know how a Roman Emperor thought? Well, we know exactly how Marx Aurelius thought, because he kept a record of his thought of his private thoughts and reflections. That gives us a really good indication of that. But we also have several major histories of his role. Um, Herodian's history, we have Cassius Dio's Historia Romana, the Historia Augusta. He's mentioned in a bunch of other ancient texts, and at least in passing. Um, we have records of his legal rescripts, his legislative activity. We have a cache of private letters that he wrote to his rhetoric tutor that was discovered in the 19th century. Um, and so, and also in our ancient sources, we have uh, letters and speeches attributed to him. We have numismatic evidence from coins. We have uh, uh, sculptures. We, we have more images of Marcus than we do of many other. I mean, we don't know, for example, what Epictetus looked like. Um, we barely know what Seneca looked like. But we have sculptures of Marcus Aurelius as a, a, a child, as a, in the prime of his life, and as a Uh, an aged uh, veteran Um, we can kind of like see how he evolved over time but also what's more important or or what's equally important perhaps from a a biographical point of view is that because he was an important guy and he moved in important circles, we actually have sources that tell us about the people around him and the environment in which we lived you know, so we, we know quite a lot about Lucius Verus, his brother, we know about Antoninus Pius, his adoptive father. We know loads about Hadrian, who was his adoptive grandfather. And so by casting the net a bit wider, and you know, one of the things I did in this biography was to do more research into some of these the figures that he knew. And then that, that allows us to elaborate a little bit more on what we know about Marcus. You know, if we can say a bit more about Hadrian, Marcus has to go and live in Hadrian's villa at one point that helps us to expand a little bit on the information that we have about Marcus as well. Um, We have information about the philosophy, we have information about the politics of the period, the literature, the military campaigns. And by kind of trying to weave all of that stuff together, we can paint a reasonable picture of Marcus's life.
1: Yeah. Just from what you say about, uh, you know, the extra detail about Antoninus and things. I thought that was really, really good. A um, couple of questions about that later on because he gets maybe not as much credit as he possibly should in in general because he seems to yeah. be quite a virtuous person himself.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I'll say a couple of things. I'll say some things for newbies like who don't know anything about Marcus. And then I'll also maybe throw in some things that even people that have been studying Stoicism and Marcus for a while might not be aware of. So one of them is, we've no evidence that Antoninus Pius was a Stoic, um, but equally, he definitely wouldn't have been ignorant of Stoicism, and he almost certainly had advisors who were Stoics. So it's possible, it's likely that Antoninus had studied some Stoicism. Even if he wasn't as committed to it as Marcus Aurelius was, so the idea that Marcus is kind of like the first Stoic emperor isn't is not entirely true. Like Antoninus was probably influenced by Stoicism and had Stoic advisors. There were other emperors that had studied Stoicism as well. Even Augustus, the founder of the empire, had Stoic tutors. And the other thing I'd mention: we we think we don't understand very clearly what a Roman emperor is. Today, when we look back on it, um, the in Latin, there isn't really a word that corresponds perfectly to our word emperor. We think of an emperor as kind of like a king who rules over multiple nations, basically. And that's not really exactly what the Roman emperor is. It's a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more complex than that. So the role of the Roman emperor is composed of multiple titles and uh, powers, basically. And some of them can be shared between multiple people. Some of them are more symbolic. Some of them are more important at a practical level. Um, Marcus was granted most of those titles and powers 13 years before he got the title Augustus. So he ruled, in a sense, alongside Antoninus Pius for about 13 years after actually his first child was born. Um, he was given these powers and titles. So he was married to an empress, Um His stepmother or adoptive mother had died by that time. So uh, his wife, Faustina, was granted the title Augusta, which is a bit like empress. So the the daughter of the emperor could also be given the title. Um, And so Marcus is married to a a sort of empress. He's given the title Imperator, which is uh, Commander-in-Chief of the military. He's Caesar. He's given what's called the tribunician power, which means that he can veto uh, motions in the Senate. And that's the main kind of political power that the, the emperor wields. The only thing he doesn't really have is the title Augustus, which is given to him. But that, that's, to a large extent, more of a symbolic title. Um, and so then when Marcus becomes emperor, the first thing he does is insist that his adopted brother, Lucius Verus, is made co-emperor with him. But really, in a sense, Marcus had, up until that point, been virtually co-emperor alongside Antoninus. One reason that's important is, to some extent, if we're cautious, we can squeeze out more information by looking at what we know of Antoninus Pius' reign, particularly towards the end, and viewing it as reflecting, to some extent, on Marcus Aurelius' values as well his kind of political agenda overlaps with Antoninus's and it's essentially the same.
1: And there was a big contrast there between the end of Hadrian's reign and the end of Antoninus's reign, wasn't there? Because Hadrian sort of lost the plot a bit towards the I, end.
0: I keep thinking, you know, one of the things I noticed over the course of my life, there are things that I, people find that I've said um, or that I've stuck by that that became, that were controversial and that people would kind of argue with me about, and then sometimes I like uh, I've advocated certain things, and then over time I've, I've seen everybody start to agree with me, and the the debate kind of disappears. So originally, when Stoicism, when I first began studying Stoicism, people told me they couldn't see that it was of any practical value, that it it wasn't really a kind of psychological or therapeutic system. Um, it didn't they didn't see how it resembled CBT. Um, nobody says that anymore. Like That argument's kind of dissolved. And I say that because when I wrote this book, I thought people would complain about the way that I've portrayed Hadrian because many people believe that Hadrian was one of the good emperors. And he was to some extent. That's his reputation. But that reputation comes to a large extent or, or, or really was boosted by a work of historical fiction called Memoirs of Hadrian, it's a, a, a beautiful like a masterpiece written by Margaret Hearsener. Um but it's it's historical fiction, right? Like Gladiator or something. It's not a, a, a biographical account, and it's an amazing. It's a literary masterpiece, but its only flaw, if you can even call it a flaw, is that it absolutely whitewashes Hadrian and presents. It, it addresses every major criticism of him and dismisses it or trivializes it one after another, like systematically. Um, so people might be surprised, therefore, to read an account of Hadrian that's a lot more critical. But I found when people read this book, there nobody came back to me and said, "Oh, we think you've been a bit unfair towards Hadrian." So maybe I made the case convincingly. I tried to draw on as many different pieces of evidence uh, as I could to to show that Hadrian was a much more malevolent, um, at least controversial figure than than people uh, assume, and. Uh, You know, Marcus has nothing good to say about Hadrian. Fronto, his rhetoric tutor, goes a bit further in the private correspondence, and he does something really pretty wacky, and it's typical of an an orator or a rhetorician. You know, rather than just saying he thought Hadrian was a bad guy, what he does is compare him to a god called Mars Gravidas, who's the god Mars in his aspect symbolizing marching into war. So he's a very grim and frightening god. And also he compares him to Hades, who's the tyrannical uh, lord of the underworld and a god that many people uh, thought it was um, superstitiously unlucky to even to mention his name. So this is pretty hardcore. I mean, it is a bit like comparing him to Satan or something like that. You know, not quite... But it's hard. It's pretty heavy for a Roman to to say he reminds me of Hades. Um, it's pretty clear, like he, he's saying, he's Hadrian was a scary dude. Well, yeah, like that's you know he executed loads of senators, and he would have executed a lot more apparently if Antoninus Pius hadn't stopped him from doing so.
1: Yeah, Antoninus seemed to be quietly in the background delaying a lot of those executions until Hadrian was gone. I think.
0: I tried not to overdo that, but the, the phrase that just comes to mind and it's a cliche is the Senate must have viewed Antoninus as a safe pair of hands. As the saying goes like, that's him in a nutshell. You know, they saw this guy. And also, I am there's certain things that I... Also, I'll use this as an opportunity to speculate about some stuff, right? Because that's where history becomes more fun. So I'll, I'll give a kind of warning and say, I don't know this for sure. This is just a hunch, right? I suspect that Hadrian adopted Antoninus Pius because the Senate um told him to. Like I I he it seems odd. Hadrian's initial choice was a guy who was completely different and totally unsuited to being emperor, and then he suddenly does a huge U-turn and chooses a guy that the Senate would have had as a number one choice. So we don't know this, but it seems to me possible that the Senate really made this decision and said, look, this guy, you know, you're making an absolute mess of this, and and this guy really, you know, would be the, the person we would choose uh, as the next emperor. And then, you know, Hadrian just kind of puts his, his rubber stamp on that, as it were.
1: Uh, one of the things that's quite ironic about Marcus Aurelius, um, he writes in his meditations, soon you will have forgotten everything, soon everybody will have forgotten you. And, um, when Pierre Hadot says in The Inner Citadel, Marcus Aurelius was wrong. 18 centuries, almost two millennia have passed and the meditations are still alive. Um, so not only Marcus Aurelius' notebook still alive, but in a way, so is he, just because of all this information we have. So um, why do you think he's someone that still resonates with people in such a way that you still have the opportunity to write these great books about him and
0: people like myself... Can't wait to read them. There's a couple of things I'd say about that. Might surprise me. I'll say this. I'll give the most surprising answer first. And I say this. um, I like to say this because it's uh, people. Some people have said the contrary. So some uh, classicists uh, and other scholars have said that they didn't think Marcus Aurelius was a great writer. Actually, Professor Mary Beard, who has a best-selling book out at the moment about Roman emperors. Um, his work I admire in many ways. Like, is is not a fan of Marcus Aurelius at all, and she says he writes trivial platitudes. She doesn't see them as very in- inspiring. And other people have said they don't think Marcus Aurelius is a good writer. And well, funnily enough, I am going to completely disagree with them. I think they're they're uh, completely wrong about that. Uh, I think Marcus Aurelius was first of all an, an extremely highly trained writer. He studied. Uh, rhetoric formally, systematically for decades under the leading scholars in Greek and Latin of his lifetime. Um, from an early age, he'd been trained in rhetoric. His mother was uh, revered by Fronto as being someone exceptionally uh, gifted in Greek, uh, highly educated woman. And Marcus is, is you know, I cannot like her son, and she raises him in this house, surrounded by intellectuals. Uh, She prepares him to be a great thinker and a great writer, immersed in in Greek culture and philosophy. And uh, Marcus uh, has a very extensive vocabulary in Greek, as you might imagine. And I think he's an extremely talented writer of aphorisms, like we don't get to see his speeches really, um, we don't get every good example of that, but we we get to see in the meditations. So I guess it's it's a notebook, you know. This isn't prepared for publication, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and people love Marcus's aphorisms and they repeat them because they're extremely well written. He's very good. At capturing philosophical insights and finding just the right word or just the right image to articulate it. Even An even cooler bit of trivia is that we have Fronto talking to him about the process of doing this. So in his letters, Fronto tells Marcus that, I mean, in the ancient world, rhetoric was a highly formal discipline. So it's very interesting when someone who's master of a very complex art tells you like have one basic rule to follow. It would be like someone who's a karate, you know, 10th Dan Black Belt telling you, look it all boils down to your breathing and your stance or something like that, right? So Fronto, who's a master of Latin rhetoric, says to Marcus, look, basically rhetoric is about finding an unusual word or phrase to articulate something rather than using the common word or phrase that everyone else uses. But being very selective and judicious in doing that so that you only do it when it actually communicates your meaning better. And he says the entire discipline of rhetoric can pretty much be wrapped up in this one basic insight. And he says for that reason, you know, a good rhetorician has to read widely and know many obscure words and phrases and be very in practice the art of doing this. And he says to Marcus, when you learn philosophical insights, in, in Greek philosophy there are often paradoxes. And sometimes they're kind of technical or obscure. And he he says to Marcus repeatedly, you you need to study rhetoric so that you can articulate these ideas clearly for your own benefit and the benefit of others. So he says, take a paradox or a philosophical saying and keep paraphrasing it maybe about three times, you know, trying to hit on exactly the right word or phrase or image to capture what it is that you're trying to say. And we see him doing that in the meditations, you know, we get front to explaining to him, this is what you should do. Meditations is the product of that, arguably. So I think, why are we still talking about him and studying him? Because he was a highly trained, ironically, because he was a highly trained rhetorician. And really, he wasn't an original philosopher. His value doesn't lie in that. He's repeating what other philosophers said, but he's articulating it much more powerfully and concisely than many of his predecessors would. And in Greek, it's very powerful. In even in English translation, uh, people get it tattooed on them. You know, I always think that sounds like a glib thing to say, but I think it's, gee, I mean, can you imagine, you know, 2,000 years from now, if you wrote something and people were getting it tattooed on themselves? Like, you know, people have sayings from Marcus Aurelius on their computer desktop and things like that and on posters on their wall and stuff, right? Um there's that? Um, I think many people just admire him because he was a great leader. So I think that's not as important a reason to want to study him. But people are attracted to powerful historical figures. That it makes them. I think people see it as a kind of proof that um, you know this guy isn't just you know that his his techniques. There must be some validity to um, these psychological coping skills that he's describing because he managed to survive in this kind of, you know, really intense, uh, demanding role. Like, he can't have been a complete, you know, he can't, the, the guy can't have been a complete snowflake, as it were, or, you know, completely incompetent. So I think that people find some kind of reassurance from that. I don't know if I do as much, but I think that's what's going on there. Um, I have to say, like, over the course of my life, I began studying stoicism about 25 years ago, roughly, and since then, shortly after that, a movie came out called Gladiator, that, where Richard Harris played Marcus Aurelius in the first act. And I know a lot of people saw that movie and they went out and started reading up on Marcus Aurelius and read The Meditations. People that had never read any history books or philosophy or self-help books before. Um, so I think part of what happened was just there was a kind of cultural moment um, because of that movie and that inspired... Uh, a lot of people to become interested and talk about Marcus Aurelius. So those are some of the reasons um, that I think he's important. And I guess you could say there's a general resurgence of interest in Stoicism and Marcus is the most accessible ancient Stoic writer and the one about whom we know the most.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Probably most people nowadays are reading the meditations first and then wanting to go on and Find out more about who wrote yeah. them. Yeah, um, you touched on it a little bit there, but um, you give a great account in the book of Marcus's upbringing, and you know how it was unusually costly and advanced, yeah. basically in terms of the private tuition he received, and you know he also happened to have some amazing role models like his mother and Antoninus, and you know they sound like Stoics and all, but name, as you said before too, um, and he became interested in philosophy around the age of 12, but do you think he would have gone on to be the character he was, the Stoic Emperor, in other words, without the influences of both his tutors and his role models, or was it down to one more than the other that he adopted philosophy as a way of life?
0: I don't think he would have, um, we can't say for sure, but I, I really, I can't imagine that he would have become the man that he was if it wasn't for those, those people that surrounded him. um, and I guess one piece of evidence for that is the private letters that we have also give the meditations gives a kind of window into his soul, but so do his private letters. It's extraordinary that we have a collection of private letters from a guy as Caesar. And then subsequently as emperor, um, we can see exactly how he talks to his friends in in private and, uh, Some people think those letters are trivial because they don't give many historical details. You know, he's often talking about quite mundane things, like, you know, where he's been on holiday and, like, Fronto's gout and stuff like that, you know. It it seems kind of mundane, and that disappoints many people. But there are some valuable bits tucked in there. Um, But he's not. He's clearly... um, I think you can see that he's somebody... Fronto refers to him at one point as being someone that he assumes has apatheia. Marcus said that his sister had severe period pains and was freaking out. And his mum freaked out even more and ran into a piece of furniture and injured herself on the edge of it. So this is almost like a weird farcical scene he's describing where everyone was just running around, kind of freaking out and bumping into furniture. And then he says later that day he went to get into bed and he found a scorpion in his bed. And Fronto says he was kind of alarmed by this, but then he realized that Marcus wouldn't have been alarmed by it because of his famous um, practice of philosophy. So even fairly early on, Fronto seems to think of Marcus as a Stoic, but they don't talk that much about Stoicism. And Marcus also kind of refers to some kind of youthful exuberance. Um, you know, he, he, he's, much, he's kind of more humorous a bit. He's much more affectionate than he comes across as being in the meditations. He seems a lot more serious in the meditations. Um, the letters put much more of a human face on him and a different personality. It could be that this is his sl- slightly younger self. Um, that we're seeing, and so maybe we had a guy who was gra- progressively getting more into stoicism. He started off maybe with some anger problems, and maybe had a bit of a quick temper. Um, he talks about getting quite anxious and quite depressed at certain points in his correspondence, and you know, I think he he used stoicism to transform himself. I don't, I think possibly he looked at Antoninus and thought, "I really want to be like him." but I'm not naturally like him. So I need some kind of method to help me become the sort of leader that I aspire to be. And yeah, he, he molded his own personality through studying stoicism, but I don't, it would have been tricky to do that just by reading some books. He did it with, um, you know, one-to-one mentoring and coaching from guys that he really admired, like Junius Rusticus.
1: Yeah. And, uh, He's sort of touched on before too. He um, specifically studied Stoicism, whereas we don't know that for sure about previous emperors. And it seemed that when he became emperor, uh, some people were uneasy about a philosopher
0: becoming emperor. Um, Why was that? Because, I mean, we're told by, I think it's in the Historia Augusta, that they thought he seemed like a bit of a killjoy, basically. That he seems kind of a, he might be kind of austere. I think the military um thought philosophers are effeminate and that they're weak and that it's a kind of cliched thing in a way. Some of this stuff might sound strangely familiar, but there were people in Rome that said we need somebody who's brutal and strong. This is quite a traditional Roman. You know uh, conflict in society, like we need someone like Julius Caesar that's going to knock a few heads together, like basically a tough guy leader, you know, um to restore order and maintain discipline in the army. and this philosopher is too much thinks thinks too much, you know he's he's soft, like he's an intellectual like how could he possibly um govern Rome effectively? Was what I suspect uh, some of his critics say. in fact we, we have some evidence that uh, some of his critics said things like that, but he proved them wrong um, arguably I, I th- again, you know they, it seems to me that the evidence that we have suggests that over the course of the f- first Marcomanic war. The Roman legions started to really admire Marcus Aurelius. They uh, that was my cat knocking something <laughs> over. Um, the, you know, they attribute two battlefield miracles to him, which I, I think which were quite famous at the time. And um, I think that's partly an indication of the fact that the Roman legions had, had you know become fans of Marcus Aurelius. I mean, the, if there's one thing that makes you popular with the Roman legions or most ancient armies, it's winning battles, you know, like that, that's, that's a pretty big, it comes down to that. It's pretty basic. It's a mm-hmm. big deal. They don't like losing and die. They don't like dying. Like, so if you're successful in winning battles, um, and also, you know, a good leader in other ways, then the, the legions really love that. And so they seem to have become big fans of Maximilian. but he seems like he, he was completely inexperienced. He had no military training or experience well, are negligible anyway, when he, he went to Austria uh, to begin taking command of the Marcomannic War.
1: Uh, yeah, and he tried to resolve a lot of the conflicts as
0: diplomatically as possible too, didn't he, but rather than trying to resort to? I think that's true. I mean, I, one thing I'd say, I kind of hate to say to people, look, this is more complicated than it seems at first. But many things in life are, and when we're looking at Roman foreign policy and military campaigns, there there are a lot more complicated, I think, than people normally assume. And so, Marcus was fighting, for instance, again m- against many different tribes on the Danube frontier, um, and often they switch sides. So they sometimes these tribes would be fighting each other. You know, sometimes they'd. Uh, ally themselves with the Romans. Sometimes they'd become neutral. Sometimes they'd join forces and attack the Romans. You know, so there was a lot of diplomacy involved in trying to manage what's going on in in this conflict. Not to mention in any ancient war, and probably it's the same to, to some extent today, we think of wars as being like one country against another. But as soon as you start to kind of dig a little bit beneath the surface, it's almost always the case that there are multiple factions in each country. And, and there are some that are more hawkish and hostile, and there are some that are more interested in negotiating peace. So in a sense, Marcus is fighting against particular factions in control of other countries, and then when a king is deposed and someone else takes over, he might ally himself with the Romans, you know, but then he maybe he gets assassinated and the guy takes over that hates the Romans, you know. So it's actually it's quite difficult to map out you know, you'd need one of those diagrams with lines going everywhere to try and figure out what on earth was going on in the Marcomanic War. Um, but you know, it it's suffice to to understand that yes, you're gonna to have to be a diplomat unless you just don't care, you know, and you think it would be a lot easier if we just killed all these guys and enslaved them, you know, that would solve the problem. Um, and I think some of Marcus's critics wanted more of a kind of scorched earth approach, more of a an aggressive uh military uh, strategy in place. And that is why, you know, one of the most concrete facts about his reign was that there was a civil war uh, against him. It didn't last very long, but uh, the fact that there was a civil war shows that he had definitely had critics. The way it comes across in the histories is that he had one critic, who was Avidius Cassius, um, his, one of his most senior generals, and this guy was critical of Marcus and instigated the civil war. But if we look closer, that can't be true. Um, there must have been a whole faction that were opposed to Marcus because Avidius Cassius commanded seven legions, and each one of those legions would be commanded by a general who was probably a Roman senator. You know, He had a whole bunch of senior Roman statesmen surrounding him, um so there was a faction of people that were opposed to Marcus's role, although the, the civil war only lasted about three months. But it shows, you know, like we're not just imagining this. There, there were people that wanted and, and they maybe, you know, that faction could have won in an alternative version of history. You know, they might have uh destroyed Marcus's uh, uh destroyed Marcus's armies and uh overthrown him or assassinated him. Um so not everybody agreed with what he was doing.
1: So he had the wars and rebellions and natural disasters, plagues, deaths of people around him, his own poor health. Um, Related to all that, I quite like Cassius Dio's opinion of him when he says uh, he did not meet with the good fortune he deserved, for he was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of troubles throughout practically his entire reign. But for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason. That amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties, he both survived himself and preserved the empire. Um, so, is this what makes him so impressive as an emperor? He didn't have it all easy at all. Um, and yet, from what we know, he still managed to be a good person,
0: essentially. He kept it all together and he set a good example to his fellow Romans. Uh, I think that was, you know, those things are, are more important, perhaps, than they might seem at first. Um and Dio, you know was there he uh, he was uh he served as a senator under Commodus, and you know so he was pretty familiar with what was happening during Marcus's lifetime. maybe he was a, a a teenager or something or when Marcus died or a young man um but he I don't know that he was even necessarily in Rome at that point, but certainly he was close enough to Marcus's reign to have a pretty good idea. And he's very, he has a, some people would say he's biased, but he has a very clear position. He thinks Marcus is the bee's knees and Commodus is just awful, basically. You know, it's pretty clear. (laughs) He couldn't be more emphatic about that, you know. So some people will say, well, he's a senator and he's kind of biased or whatever. Um, But he was very close to events and he has a very strong opinion in that regard.
1: Yeah, and you can see... Marcus's immersion in philosophy really is what helped helped him cope with all that stuff. And the counter example is probably Commodus himself and even Lucius to an extent.
0: Yeah. uh, They both uh, had many vices in in slightly different ways. Um, I mean, I think Marcus was a very patient, very tolerant man. You know, that was really central to ruling the Roman empire. Uh, particularly at that time. Um, I think he did a good job of it overall. There are mistakes that he made. I think the biggest mistake that he made... um, I mean, people... people, Most people will say the biggest mistake. And even, actually, I think Herodian... No, Cassius Dio actually says this. uh, Maybe Herodian says it as well, that the biggest mistake he made was... uh, or the thing he regretted most was being succeeded by Commodus. But I would say that I don't really believe that's something that he had a lot of control over. Um, However, he made a mistake in appointing Avidius Cassius to be the governor of Syria. Actually, no one ever mentions that, but I think that was one of the biggest errors of judgment that he made because that led to the civil war um, and caused a number of other problems. He shouldn't have put that guy in control of his own country as it were, that would have be been against Roman policy. I'm not sure exactly why he did that, um, but uh, it backfired badly on him. He, and that was a mistake he made in trusting somebody and giving him too much power, basically. So, yeah, I think uh, the main legacy that Marcus left us was that he, he protected the empire and allowed it to continue for longer than it might have, if uh, he he had responded differently. Um, I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine. It's a difficult one. Sometimes with history, you can say, if this guy hadn't have done this, if this guy hadn't existed, how would history have unfolded differently? With Marcus, that's a little bit complicated. Um, I think if he'd been an angrier man and more driven by revenge, that he would have potentially lost the civil war. Are arguably, um, it may be that an advantage in that regard was that a number of the Germanic and Sarmatian tribes were immediately willing to fight uh, as Roman auxiliaries uh, against Avidius Cassius. Now, that's really weird, by the way, if you think about it. Let's just dwell on that for a moment. Marcus has been fighting these guys for years. And then the Civil War breaks out. And he says, listen, I kind of need you to go all the way uh to Syria to fight against this usurper. And they agree, like they you know, they send thousands of troops to fight alongside the Romans. The guys that he's been fighting. You know, that shows how complicated and the role of diplomacy. So that you know what it speaks to is maybe even these people that fought against Marcus didn't see him as a bad guy, as it were, you know. Um, they didn't just see him as their enemy. And also, maybe they were much more afraid of Vidius Cassius than they were of Marcus Aurelius. So, if he'd been a more brutal emperor, you know, and just, you know, burned down villages and executed lots of people and stuff like that, it may have been that he wouldn't have had that support, um, which was possibly crucial in uh, preventing the civil war or winning the civil war.
1: Yeah, it's kind of cool that for every event you detail, we learn something about Marcus's character, you know, and his response to it. So, you know, for example, he, he always seemed to delay the acceptance of titles and accolades after wars. He held public auctions of treasures to raise funds. He pardoned a lot of people who rebelled against him, argued for the rights of women, children, slaves, um, it seems like the more desperate things got the more rational his responses were but um, are there any instances where you might say he had an irrational response
0: or you know just lost the plot a bit? There's a couple of things that are kind of notorious in the, the histories. There's a bit where he it, we're told, I believe it's in the Historia Augusta or it might be in Cassius Dio that he contemplated wiping out the summations. So some people hold that against Marcus. They say he considered committing genocide um, against the summations. Now, when we're evaluating historical sources, a lot of the information that we get is unreliable, particularly in later histories. Um, And one of the, you know, one of the benchmarks we have is, well, there's what we're told, you know, is gossip or speculation And then there's stuff that we know actually happened. So Marcus didn't exterminate that tribe. So I don't know how we know or how the author of the Historia Augusta knows that Marcus contemplated doing that. Um, Maybe it was just a rumor. Uh, Maybe it was something that he'd said in a speech. Um, But he didn't do it. So, you know, we won't know for sure. We can never know really for sure what was going on there. It's held up sometimes as a criticism today on Marcus. Um, But I think the key thing is that he never actually uh, did that. What he did instead was resettle enemy troops within territories that were controlled by Rome, which is traditionally a way of disarming them. I mean, you can get them to hand over all their weapons, you know, beat their swords into ploughshares, as it were, and then come in and you know give them farmland and stuff. Um, in northern Italy was where he he tended to put them, um, and then you have more control of them. You can prevent them just kind of organizing and uh, you know fighting you again, or you recruit them into the army and send them really far away. You know, so he kind of did that. He took a load of Sarmatians and sent them to Britain. Actually, we're told there's a movie. With Clive is it Clive Owen in it called King Arthur, which is based on this like one line in the historia Augusta that says Marcus Aurelius got has about six thousand Sarmatian horsemen, kind of almost like precursors of modern European knights and sent them to Britain um I mean that's wild. you know there's many things in histories we think. What? You know, back up? What was that like? You know, that would be like, you might as well send them to Mars. Like, you sent these guys all the way to, to like, Britain? What, to, like, Hadrian's Wall or somewhere like that? Like, what was that all about? What was it like when they arrived? So that movie interprets them as the kind of forerunners of the Knights of the Round Table. Um, So it's kind of an interesting pseudo-historical or fantasy sort of Take on uh, this cryptic remark in it's the histories. Su- surprising that there isn't more
1: movies about Marcus Aurelius. Would you say? I know he's yeah in a couple. that, You know, well part of you know the fall of the Roman Empire are and uh, right. Gladiator and that. But there's, there's a movie really called
0: Acts of Vengeance also with Antonio Banderas. That's kind of a pretty mediocre action movie that's based around the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, for what it's worth. It's kind of interesting. We, um, it's not a great movie, but it's got quotes from the Meditations in it. We might get another one because Gladiator 2 comes out, um, in I think, in October this year. And who knows? I mean, people didn't like Napoleon. Um, but so, you know, everyone's kind of waiting to see is Gladiator 2 going to be a good movie or a bad movie from Ridley Scott? Now, people might not be aware of this, but at the end of Gladiator, there's a, there's a young boy who's called Lucius, who's a fictional character, and he's meant to be the grandson of Marcus Aurelius. And the main protagonist in Gladiator 2 is the, that young boy um, when he's grown up in adulthood. So the main protagonist in Gladiator 2 is the fictional grandson of Marcus Aurelius. So for that reason, I'm kind of hopeful that there might be at least some references to Marcus Aurelius in that movie, you'd think. Um, you know, maybe even some if we're lucky, we'd get some kind of passing reference to the philosophy. But we have to wait and see. There was a movie about Seneca that came out not long ago that everyone except me hated. I really liked it. Um it's called Seneca and the Creation of Earthquakes, and it stars John Malkovich, who I think is almost perfectly cast as Seneca. Like he he looks quite a lot like the the bust that we have of Seneca, actually. The real one. There's a fake one and a, real, a a misattributed one and a real one. Seneca was a kind of jowly, bald, um, pursed-lipped, beady-eyed, typical Roman senator. It turns out we know it's him because his name is carved on it. Like, um, so we, you know, we're pretty sure it's it's the real Seneca. Uh, yeah, I liked that movie, but nobody, hardly anybody else watched it. I
1: haven't seen it, but I, I've been meaning to watch it. But I, I did see the. The reviews
0: weren't uh, (laughs) favourable. I thought it was good. People didn't like it because they love Seneca.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, There's two Senecas, though. You know, there's the way Seneca portrays himself and there's the way that the historians portray him. And they don't really line up, unlike Marcus Aurelius, who is portrayed in the Roman histories in a way that's fairly consistent with, you know, the, the stuff that he says in the Meditations. You know, there are, all our sources for Marcus Aurelius, we we don't really have this problem with Marcus Aurelius of a kind of, you know, this such a conflict. You know, all, all our sources more or less converge on this image of a guy who is very serious about being a Stoic philosopher and, you know, generally pretty highly admired by everybody except the faction of Warhawks um, among the, the Roman elite. But Seneca is, we have some, you know, quite, conflicting uh, accounts of and so if you portray a version of seneca that's based on the roman histories that that comes as a shock to people who have mainly read seneca's own writings yeah <laughs> i can imagine
1: <laughs> um so i really like the first line of the the book was marcus aurelius did not have a heart of stone um yeah and you go on to say that he was known for his warmth and his friendship and affection, it, it sort of dispels the common misconception, you know, that Stoics seek, seek to be cold and unemotional. And, you know, there are many examples of that in his meditations too. But do, do you have any favourite examples from his life that show that side of his character?
0: Yeah, there are there are quite a few, actually. Um, I mean, his letters, all of the letters to Fronto are just, you know, reading them at all would completely dispel any idea that he's kind of aloof and poker-faced. Like, he's incredibly affectionate towards his friends um, beyond what would be normal in our culture, uh, basically. And he's, he's always expressing his love for his friends and his family, you know, he's kind of got a sense of humor, he's a very, very caring individual. Um, he takes his job very seriously, he becomes quite anxious about some of the problems that he's facing. Um I think in terms of his wait, like I mentioned in the introduction, but there's several references actually to him crying. We're told that when one of his tutors died, and we're not told which tutor it was, we can kinda like try and guess, but we're not told which one it was. Um but uh, we're told that he, he was in tears and inconsolable, and the palace staff tried to calm him down because they thought he shouldn't be seen um weeping like a woman, as the Romans would say in public Romans were quite sexist right um so they do they do t- even Marcus sometimes speaks about uh something being womanly or feminine as a in a kind of derogatory way. So they, they saw that as weak and womanly and they were concerned that Caesar, uh, the heir shouldn't be seen that way. And Antoninus Pius supposedly said, just leave him alone. You know, it's you know, sometimes you just got to allow uh, people to experience their emotions naturally. Stoicism isn't against grief. Um I think that's something that people miss that's probably the most common misunderstanding. That's why I wanted to begin the book that way. Because I think it's the most common misconception about Stoicism. So I wanted to knock it on the head right at the outset. The Stoics, I'll, I'll actually do a little bit of a deep dive into this, right? As a psychotherapist, um, my belief over the years has come to be that one of the biggest obstacles to self improvement is, like most things, you know, there's a misunderstanding that people have that really trips them up and gets in the way. So everybody wants to do self-improvement on their confidence, their fears, uh, their self-esteem, you know, their emotions and stuff. But most people start off without any understanding of how emotions function. And the bulk of self-improvement advice is based on this position of ignorance about what an emotion is and how it actually functions. And so we often get quite bad self-improvement advice because it's it's really just based on uh, a very naive, overly simplistic, incorrect understanding of, of how our emotions function. Now, one of the reasons that Stoicism is so important and has stood the test of time is that right out of the gate, the Stoics had a more sophisticated understanding of what emotions are and how they function. So for a start... They distinguish between voluntary and involuntary aspects of our emotional experience. And in psychotherapy, that's absolutely integral. Most people, and most people that write self-help books and give self-improvement advice on the internet, fail to make that distinction. And so they end up saying things that are very confused, because they're not making any distinction between how you would deal with involuntary emotional reactions and then your voluntary overlay or re- response to that. Um, and they're completely different. And the way we would respond to them would be completely... There's no point trying to control the initial involuntary emotional reaction because it's too late. Um, and by definition, it's not under your direct control. So trying to control it is, is one of the main pitfalls of self-improvement. It usually makes it worse, right? So if your heart's speaking fast because you're anxious and you try to uh, distract yourself from that, to conceal it from other people, to force it to to go down by relaxing, you know, those kind of tactics usually just make you more anxious. They increase self-focused attention, they interfere with your, uh, increase your cognitive load, make you worse at interacting with other people. Um, Usually backfires quite dramatically. But, you know, when you feel anxious, usually you then... Uh, ruminate about the things that make you anxious you you dwell on them, you exaggerate them, you complain about them um, you uh, fail to problem solve them in appropriate ways, um, you run away from them, you use drugs, uh, alcohol to cope with them or distraction techniques, I mean those are largely things that are under voluntary control though that you could choose to do differently um, so at the very least, you need to make a distinction between the voluntary and the involuntary aspects of the emotional experience and not kind of muddy them together. The Stoics were clear about that. The other thing is that most people assume, we tend to think of reason and emotion as two different faculties. Partly, that's an inheritance from a, a kind of a reading of Plato. But uh, I it, think it's a very unhelpful um, way of thinking about emotion it would be better like the Stoics to view cognition as being one of the main ingredients of emotion. Um, Because otherwise, for example, um, I watched a video recently, I'll give you a specific example, I'll go pick on an influencer called Andrew Tate, right? Who had a video recently, um, it's called something like what Andrew Tate learned from Marcus Aurelius and it's his take on it. Everything he says is premised on what we might call the hydraulic a lump theory of emotion, right? So this just kind of folk psychology, simplistic view of emotion. So he thinks if you're angry, what you should do, and he, he says you should accept anger, which is right, but then he also sometimes talks about suppressing anger or venting it by going to the gym and stuff like that, right? Which would make sense if anger was just like uh, uh, something that wells up within you, like pressure, Right? that maybe you, sometimes you should suppress it, maybe sometimes you'd kind of like vent it, get it get your system, channel it into something else. But what if anger is actually a way of thinking? You know, what if it turns out, funnily enough, surprise, surprise, that anger is cognitive and it's got to do with your values, attitudes, beliefs, uh, and so on. Then suppressing it or venting it in the gym is going to do nada, to help change the attitudes and beliefs that made you angry in the first place. Like, is, these are kind of band-aid solutions. Um, and so recognising that our emotions are primarily cognitive opens up a whole two tub- toolbox of philosophical, rational, cognitive therapy techniques that really get to the core of what's going on in our emotional life. And the Stoics were right about that as well. So in ancient Stoicism, you know, if you understand that the Stoics view emotion as a cake that's baked from multiple ingredients, it's not just like a blob of energy of which we're completely ignorant. Like it, it's uh, like a, a clock with different pieces and components and in it interacting, you know. There are desires and action tendencies like facial expressions, breathing patterns, um, mental images, memories, um, forms of internal dialogue beliefs attitudes values like all that kind of combine together to bake the cake of depression or bake the cake of anxiety and once you know that you might think oh that some of these ingredients i, I, I can 't really change but maybe I can change some of the other ingredients like and it gives you a lot more control over your emotions if you begin with a more accurate and nuanced sophisticated understanding of Of what anger is, what anxiety is, what depression is. And the Stoics have that. Um, And so that's why, you know, suppressing and uh, concealing emotions and and all that kind of stuff is really just predicated on on, uh, a way of understanding emotions that they didn't, that wouldn't have made any sense to them to begin with. So, like, it's wrong for us to kind of impose that on them and interpret Stoicism in that way. Um, You know, when we understand, Stoicism, you know, they, they have a more rounded, more balanced way of interacting with emotion. And that means acknowledging certain emotions and accepting them. For example, uh, grief. You know, if someone close to you dies, the Stoics wouldn't expect you to be completely unemotional about that. Um, they'd think even an animal feels loss. Like, you know, it would be natural to experience grief. But they would think for grief to turn into clinical depression for you to ruminate about it, for it to go on maybe for years afterwards would be unnecessary and unnatural. And it's probably got to do with the way that you're processing your grief and choosing to respond to it. And so that's what you should take responsibility for and change. Um, I think the Stoics are in favour of natural emotional processing, um, which is something that we place a lot of emphasis on in modern psychotherapy. And so,
1: those in terms of those involuntary reactions that people would have, um, is dealing with those still rooted in the sort of beliefs and attitudes that you can uh, examine, uh, you know, as a, f- a first step to to sort of calming those. Because I know maybe some people might say that they have an involuntary act reaction. They can maybe examine the the judgment they've made
0: rash, yeah. rationally. Um. Well. We can give specific examples. You know, emotions have typical, sort of stereotypical beliefs. Like we know this from research on cognitive therapy. And the Stoics knew this. The Stoics write about this. It, I mean, it's mind-boggling how far ahead of their time they were. Actually, they understood the cognitive structure of different emotions. For instance, the Stoics knew that fear is the is linked to belief that something in the future. Uh, is going to happen that's really bad so today we would say informally the fear or anxiety consists in the belief that something bad is going to happen and i won't be able to cope or more formally like in research literature i would say the anxiety is based on uh, an inflated appraisal of the probability and severity of a threat and an underestimate of your coping ability. That's in tech, kind of psychological jargon how we'd articulate what's going on, right? And and you could be wrong about all of those cognitive factors. I might be wrong about how likely it is that I'm going to get uh, sacked from my job or something like that or die you know, imminently. Or I might exaggerate how bad it would be if I lost my job or I broke up with my girlfriend or something like that. Or I might underestimate my ability to deal with it and survive um, and cope with a setback like that. So, But if you think of fear as just a kind of blob of energy and you don't understand that it's based on a bunch of beliefs like that, then you've got no right out of the gate. It wouldn't even occur to you to begin questioning the beliefs and assumptions that are, are making you frightened. And um, like we we do in cognitive therapy.
1: Yeah, and so you know you might have a bad involuntary reaction that persists some physical symptoms for you know longer than than you even takes to come to terms with you know the rational conclusion that you've drawn. Um, so that sounds a bit confusing, maybe, but. You know, is there any way you can limit the physical impact in that way?
0: Yeah, I mean, like the most of the problems caused by our emotions, like like anxiety, are are due to the way that we respond to them. I mean, the best way. Well, uh, one reason there are several reasons for this. Right. First of all, the things that we do in response to anxiety cause lots of problems, like in their own right, and they usually amplify the problem and, and the initial problem, and make it far worse. Right, so you might say, okay, but the the initial involuntary feeling of anxiety is still painful. It's still a problem in its own right, even if it's less so than people tend to assume. Um, you know, the problem isn't the problem; it's your, you know, like it's your way of dealing with the problem that's causing uh, causing you most of the suffering. But uh, what's missing here is that we. One of the most robustly established findings in the entire field of research in psychotherapy is something we call emotional habituation. So anxiety naturally wears off. This comes as a shock to a lot of people, right? But we know this for certain. We've known it for well over like 100 years now. Um, it's it, it's one of the most well-established findings in the field of psychopathology or psychology, like anxiety abates naturally through prolonged repeated exposure to the trigger, right? It has to, like, if it didn't animals would never adapt to changes in their environment. If I, if you are a, suppose you were a squirrel for a minute and you're, you're in a primordial forest and you go to the place where all the nuts are, right? Where one day a tree falls down and it scares the hell out of you makes you jump out of your skin, and so you run a mile. And then you go back uh, the next day, in the forest is silent. There's nothing there, but you're still kind of scared because this is where that tree fell down, nearly squashed you, right? And then you go back the next day, and your anxiety kind of was worn off a little bit, but you're still a little bit nervous because tree falls in your head. But you keep going back, and it doesn't happen. So your anxiety wears off. Now you can get all the nuts, right? So where there's an absence of threat... Like, anxiety should wear off, like, if there's no actual harm. If it didn't, you know, animals wouldn't adapt to uh, a lack of threat in their environment, right? It wouldn't make sense. Like, it has to wear off. Um, And we know that it does, and we know from clinical trials it does very reliably under the right conditions. So the big puzzle is how come sometimes it doesn't? Like, And the answer to that is because generally... Uh, we, we're doing stuff that stops it from wearing off. Like usually we're, what happens is that people are doing things that maintains their anxiety and prevents it from just wearing off naturally. So the, that's why I would say the initial feeling of anxiety isn't as big of a problem as people assume because left to its own devices, under the right conditions it will abate or wear off naturally over time. And so realising that you know i for example um some of the self help advice people get about breathing techniques or distracting themselves you know some of these strategies could potentially prevent emotional habituation from happening so things that people are doing to try and help themselves particularly avoidance and distraction techniques will maintain anxiety why like, and and so often it's it's about unlearning all these bad habits just allowing yourself to feel the anxiety but to keep going into the situation where you feel it so that your body can do what even a squirrel would do and just let the anxiety abate naturally over time. Almost always when we see clients in therapy, what we're doing is getting them to stop doing uh, unhelpful coping strategies that are maintaining their their anxiety Um, and then to face the, the feared situation so that this we call it exposure therapy, graduated exposure therapy, in steps and stages so that their anxiety can wear off naturally.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what the Stoics say about, uh, you know if you're going to get the therapeutic benefits of practicing the philosophy, you have to uh, re-
0: repeat it a lot, you know, a lot of repetition. Yeah. And, I mean, this idea of habituation, the Stoics don't express it that clearly, but Plutarch refers to it I think there's some indication that Chrysippus is aware of it. And uh, it was definitely known in the ancient world. It's in Aesop's fables, explain it really clearly. There's a fable of the fox and the lion, um, which articulates this basic idea that when you're frightened of a situation, if you keep returning to it under normal circumstances, your fear will wear off eventually. Um, So, you know, that's really the... the key to most anxiety treatment today, we know that it's not this. Isn't, this isn't a theory, you know. This is something that's beyond dispute now because, like, it's been known for such a long time. There's so many different types of evidence converging on that and corroborating. It's taken. It's actually taken for granted by most modern uh, researchers. But it's, so it's weird that a lot of people don't fully understand this, and and so much of the self help advice that we get is like conflicts with. You know, um, I call it the most robustly established finding in the entire field of psychotherapy research. Like, it's like an open secret. You know, every researcher knows that this is this is true. Exposure therapy, for instance, is used as a benchmark against which we compare other types of, uh, like, new treatments because we're like, well, we know that works. Like, so if we come up with a new therapy, we what we do is make a comparison and say, does it work any better than exposure therapy? Or does it at least work as well as it or something? But I think the premeditatio malorum technique is what in therapy jargon we would call imaginal exposure. So if you're a squirrel, you could go to where the tree fell down. But as a human being, you could also visualize going to where the tree fell down, or you could watch a video about it. Or you you could even do VR that replicates the experience. I mean, anything that evokes the anxiety would potentially also allow the anxiety to wear off or habituate. So those are things that we can also do in therapy. But 2,000, 2,300 years ago, the Stoics are using something that really resembles imaginal exposure. They tell themselves to repeatedly visualize their own death, exile, poverty, sickness, um, so that they're no longer worried by these things.
1: Yeah, it really is amazing how far ahead of their time they were, as yeah, you said. ahead.
0: Well, I'll give you a good indication of that. You know, some of the psychotherapists that people admired, like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and guys like that, had no idea of some of the things that the Stoics knew that are now supported by research and psychotherapy. You know, the ancient Stoics knew far more about psychotherapy um, and they had far more effective concepts and techniques than most of the psychoanalysts did.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's How very... weird
0: is that? <laughs> yeah. In the 20th century, we took a massive step backwards in a sense. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why they're continuing to come into prominence as people rediscover them over the ages. That's one of the reasons that stoicism actually went through a a, a resurgence. I mean, I I can speak to this a bit because and I always say that I I feel like somebody who says, oh, I was into this band before they were cool. Like, you know, I I was, I began studying stoicism before it became popular, just barely, right? It was about 25 years ago and no one was interested in it. Like when I was a postgraduate student, I I began reading the stoics and stuff. No one cared. There weren't popular books on stoicism uh, really at that time. And, uh, you know, it, it was because um, people began to realise that stoicism rebe- resembled cognitive behavioural therapy in part that that allowed them to say maybe the advice that Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus are giving actually works. And it, it gave that a kind of validation Um, because prior to that, psychoanalytic therapists would have poured scorn on it. You know, they would have said Freud would have... Now, bear with me, because whenever you explain what Freud actually believed, people think you're joking, right? I'm not. I'm deadly serious. I spent years studying Freud. I have a master's degree in psychoanalytic theory, right? I trained in in psychodynamic counselling. Practised it for a while. Freud thought all anxiety was caused by repressed castration anxiety, Right And you know that's crazy, right? But Freud was crazy, right? he, like, he literally um, believed that you're in denial or you unconsciously you've repressed uh, this fear that you have of being castrated by your father, and that in order to overcome your fear flying or whatever, you have to um, really process. These feelings of the Oedipus complex and the feelings, that, sexual feelings that you supposedly have towards your own mother and father, according to Freud, well, Freud had a basically a zero percent success rate in treating mental health problems like that, um, and yet CBT has like a ninety percent success rate in treating simple phobias, right? Because and funnily enough, the, so the Freudians thought they used to say if you use um, rational techniques or behavioral techniques to deal with your anxiety, you'll get this problem that they call symptom substitution. So you'll get another problem that will pop up uh, that, you know, So you, okay, you overcome your phobia, but you're going to start compulsively masturbating or something. Uh, if you, you know, if you use CBT was what they claimed, because that was what their theory told them. Um, and it, it turned out to be completely false. You know, we do follow up studies on people that have had psychotherapy and they don't uh, start developing the kind of symptom substitution problems that Freud. I mean, this this is a bit of a deep dive into the history of psychotherapy. But the point is that even when I started training, like in the 1990s, people still believed a lot of this stuff. Right. And it, it put them off endorsing stoicism like even when i first was into stoicism if you said hey you know why don't we do this premeditatio malorum thing people say would say no you but that doesn't deal with the psychosexual roots of your problem right and they genuinely thought that was a reason for not doing what marcus aurelius said right i mean it's baffling now right (laughs) because it's crazy like there's not a shred of evidence like to support most of what they were saying And they were crucially wrong about that. But cognitive behavioral therapy then showed that you can reliably deal with many problems uh, using philosophical or rational techniques, Socratic questioning and exposure therapy and stuff like that. And so it validated a lot of what – and we we take that for granted now. Like most of the things that really led to cultural change are things, you know, like everyone takes for granted. So it's, it's hard for us to even perceive them now. Like, but honestly, if you went back in a time machine, even like forty years or something like that, and you started telling people about stoicism, you, you'd get pushback from people that were into Freudian psychoanalysis or Jungian analysis, and or, you know, or its various offs, telling you it was dangerous. And they've all gone; all these people have disappeared. Why? Like, because they were they were wrong then, and they're wrong now. It took decades for them to eventually admit it and for that kind of objection just to dissolve so you don't you never hear anyone saying that anymore except possibly in certain other countries you know there's countries where psychoanalysis is still really big like maybe in france and in brazil and maybe some other countries but in the uk and in america and in canada and like effectively nobody believes that anymore so the the path was clear for stoicism
1: yeah and i would really recommend your book uh philosophy of CBT um, just on some of the things you were talking about there and also how to think like a Roman Emperor which sort of weaves in some of that that stuff uh, with Marcus Aurelius' life as well um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time um, just before we uh, finish up I just wanted to ask if there was anything that you haven't been asked in you know previous interviews about the book that you were hoping to be asked about it but uh, or if not any bits of Random trivia about Marcus's life that you couldn't fit into the book.
0: Let me think. I don't know if I can think of a question that I haven't been asked. Um, there's a, some bits of trivia, I guess, that I haven't mentioned. Like when I was researching this book, and the other, book, I've written three books in a row about Marcus really, so spent. It's unusual that I've spent that much time. Writing about one subject, and as part of it, I went to Carinthia. Oh, I think if, so. I, that's a bit of trivia, and I think everybody should go there. In Austria, it's near Vienna. There's a huge archaeological park there. This is where Marcus, we know, wrote part of the Meditations. So they have like three museums. We have they have a reconstructed Colosseum. They have an entire functioning reconstructed Roman villa from the time of Marcus Aurelius. It's crazy. Like, so it's a, I think most people that are really into this stuff don't even know that that exists. For some reason, they don't make the connection. But if you're really into Roman history and Marcus Aurelius, you could go to Conuntum. And it, it's, a, it's amazing. They, do, they have people dressed up as legionaries reenacting um, stuff there. It's a really amazing place. Um, if you want to kind of immerse yourself in the history and, and really try and visualize what Marcus Aurelius' life was like, but I think that's interesting. Other bits of trivia about Marcus Aurelius. I mean, I've said this loads of times, but I think a lot of people don't realize that he was really into, he led a dance troupe. He was really into dance. And you you can find references to dance in the meditations, right? Um, That's one little bit of trivia. There's another, I guess, there's another curious thing, which is that he was really a family friend of, although Stoic philosophy and all Socratic philosophy is kind of opposed to sophistry. So there's this movement that began during the, the, the reign of Nero called the Second Sophistic. And it was the Romans basically really embracing Greek culture and the Greek intellectuals that were called sophists that could command huge fees and were invited over to Rome to speak. And it was kind of like a resurgence of the sophists in the time of Socrates. Uh, Hadrian was like hugely into the the second sophistic as well. Marcus was really quite into it because he was into rhetoric and oratory. So although we think of sophistry and philosophy as kind of being opposed and in conflict, Marcus really kind of blended them. He was interested in both. He warns himself against sophistry in the meditations, he was also friends with lots of sophists. You know, some of his best friends were sophists. And Herodes Atticus, who was hands down the most famous and influential sophist of the period, was Marcus's personal Greek rhetoric tutor. And also, he was a family friend. He lived for a time in the same villa as Marcus' mother um, under the patronage of Marcus's maternal uh, great grandfather, if I remember rightly. So he had these weird family connections uh, to the sophist movement. Those are some things. The things that Marcus says about dance and music are actually some of the most psychologically insightful parts of the meditation. And maybe that's a good thing to leave your your audience with. So there's practical value in it. Um, Marcus, first of all, makes what I would call a common sense psychological observation. He says that... If you listen to a piece of music or you watch a dance, it's evocative. It could make you feel anxious or excited, or, you know, angry or well up with pride, right? You know, music and dance and stories are meant to evoke emotions. That's what they do. But as someone um, who led Dance Trip himself and knew a lot about this, he says, but if you break it down into individual movements, uh, which I guess you rehearse if you're training to dance, uh, individual notes it, it loses that evocative power so it's curious that if you dismantle something that's very powerful and emotional and evocative it, it loses that power completely and he says you can apply this to any problem that you face in life like if something's really frightening if you break it down into small enough components and face one at a time you know it it can take away when we worry about stuff we it we are, in a sense telling ourselves a horror story about our own future. But, you know, like that horror story loses its power if you just look at it one frame at a time, break it down like into smaller chunks. He was absolutely right about that. And we use a very similar technique in, in state-of-the-art modern psychotherapy. It works really well in the treatment of anxiety disorders. He articulates it very clearly. Again, you know, uh, two thousand you know, nearly two thousand years ago it's remarkable freud never says anything like that Jung never says anything like that you know all these other like f- famous psych guys like jordan peterson andrew tate like modern self-improvement gurus like don't really i like, explain techniques or processes like that marcus is crystal clear about this stuff like and th- this is actually what we would do in uh, in many cases in, in modern psychotherapy. Is a type of Third wave psych therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy that specifically uses a technique that's very similar to that. Um it's very it can be effective for different emotions, but particularly in the treatment of anxiety.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect note to end on in the practical spirit of a stoicism. P- practical takeaway. Yeah. Oh. Exactly. Uh hopefully it encourages people to check out your book, Marcus Aurelius, The Stoic Emperor. Uh, and even dive deeper into Marcus's meditations too. So thanks very much, Donald, for your time. I really appreciate you coming on.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me.
1: Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the What is Stoicism podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please consider taking a second to leave a rating and a review. It's a good way to let me know you're getting value from the content and it helps more people discover the show. I appreciate your support. Thanks so much. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, I recommend checking out the Stoic Handbook podcast by John Brooks. It's one I've been a fan of myself for a while. It has great reviews. John publishes regular episodes that are always filled with practical wisdom, and it's available on all the usual podcast platforms. You can also find it on the web
0: at stoichandbook.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening.